WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week we're joined by the writer of DC's Catwoman, Justice League Dark, and The Swamp Thing, as well as the upcoming Radio Apocalypse from Vault and the many deaths of Layla Starr from Boom Studios, one of the busiest folks in comics, Rom V. Rom, thanks for coming up for air long enough to chat with us. No, my pleasure. Uh, when, when Dan got in touch, I said, uh, anytime for the uh, WMQ&A and the uh, Xavier Files crew. So I'm happy to be here. And we appreciate that. <laughs> um, yeah, so let, let's, we'll start with the icebreaker. Uh, what, what comics do you remember reading when you first got into comics? Well, when I first got into comics, um, it was mostly off of uh, European comics. Okay. Uh, my earliest my earliest memories are actually collecting the Phantom Lee Fox strips that used to come in uh, Indian newspapers every Sunday, um, and they were they were weird because um, the original comic had the Phantom based in a place called Bengala, uh, and. Bengal is actually an area of India. And so people were offended by the idea that, no, we're not jungles and, and tribals living in forests. What the hell is this? Uh, and so all of that had to be changed. So I, I owned the Indian reprints where the names of all of the locations had been changed. Uh, and so it was the most bizarre thing. Of course, I didn't know this at the time, only later realized it, but so Phantom happens to be one of my sort of earliest memories of reading comics. Um, but as a child, I probably read a lot of Tintin and, and Asterix. Um, I only got into the Marvel DC stuff as I got a little bit older, closer to being a teenager. Um, m my relatives would travel abroad and kind of get me these digests of various Marvel DC stories put together. Um, and I kind of stopped reading comics for a while, um, mostly because my dad insisted I had to read good proper books. Um, and so we got, we got rid of what was a pretty large comic book collection. Um, and then when I was 19, I think I moved to the US to, to study chemical engineering and a friend of mine dropped the first volume of Sandman in my lap and that kind of blew my mind and brought me back and all that. So I suppose you could say I had two comic book childhoods, one of them when I was 19. <laughs> Very cool. Uh, now, before we dive into the individual books you're working on, uh, I'm curious how you budget your time for writing. Uh, you'll have five books coming out at once shortly. Uh, mm -hmm. That's some Silver Age writer output. Uh, do you assign days of the week to certain projects like Monday's Catwoman, Tuesday's Radio Apocalypse, etc., or is it more as the creative juices on a particular book strike? No, I actually work to a pretty pretty good schedule. Uh, the, the reason I'm looking aside is because I've got my schedule pasted on a corkboard wall, um, and I try to keep up with it, but usually I'm frantically sort of running to catch up, but the deadlines have gone by like one or two days. Um, I'm, I'm pretty good about staying close to them at least. Um, and I think to be honest, the, the productivity is more a byproduct of, of being relatively new to all of this more than, uh, as you said, you know, being some kind of silver age reincarnation of writers. Um, I think 
basically when I went into walked into New York Comic Con in, in 2019, is it 2019? Yeah, um, I had I had no sort of future gigs outside of what I was already doing, which was uh, I was writing these savage chores, uh, and uh, I was working on I think the next image book, um, which was blue and green, mm-hmm. uh, and and so. I walked in with, with sort of no plans and I walked out going like, oh my God, 2020 looks like it's kind of full. Um, and, and what had happened in the meantime is I had also pitched a bunch of other projects. And as I suppose, as my work became more persistent and more people started reading it, I think publishers also realized that, okay, this guy's doing something that people enjoy. Uh, and so everything I had pitched before came back and they went, yes, let's do it. Uh, and so now I was here. I was with like you know four or five books pitched, and and um, because we had said yeah, let's do it, I was now committed to to working on them. So I suppose, um, and I've spoken to some more experienced writers this year, and, and the biggest thing I've taken away is yeah, learn to say no to a few things here and there. But um, I'm pretty I'm pretty happy, you know, the the thirteen year old and me. Who, who I started writing when I was 13 as a hobby. So a 13 year old and me finally having gone through, you know, nine years of uh, studying and working as a chemical engineer, finally going like, yes, all those ideas we had, we are allowed to do them now. Uh, and so part of it is also just unfettered enthusiasm on my part. That's uh, that's pretty, I'm just thinking about that. Like that all started at like New York Comic Con 2019 and yeah. then like so, like just last year, your your output kind of explodes, even with you know everything kind of getting put on hold for like two months during the pandemic. Suddenly, you know, Ram is everywhere. So you know, even I mean, if anything, the pandemic probably helped because I'm not allowed to go anywhere. I have to sit at my desk and work. So <laughs> fair. <laughs> I mean, it's not it's not great for the for for the mental health, but. Um, I've always been an escapist at heart. So, so even, even as a kid, um, I, I remember this episode, my, one of my teachers called in my mom and said like, does he need some kind of help, professional help maybe because he's always daydreaming all the time. Like he's never quite here. Um, and I think to be honest, like that has continued all my life. Uh, and I tend to be someone who's always thinking about stories, even when I'm, you know, supposed to be doing other things. So I tend to be a little scatterbrained and all of that. But um, I think the the byproduct of that is the only way I know of of how to deal with being stuck inside a room for for months on end is to let my mind wander to other places. So I suppose it helps to be able to write these stories. So we have a lot to discuss. Mm. Um, but I want to start with Catwoman because that's, you know, that's my personal brand is very much along those lines. Uh, right. Were you approached to for a pitch on Catwoman or did you pitch DC on that character? No, the way it happened uh, was when I first started um, working at DC it was through Jamie Rich, who had read Black Mumba which is my 2016 self-published book. Um, and he had brought me on board to do a Batman Secret Files story, um, which, you know, did well, garnered uh, some attention and people were quite happy with it. And so he said, hey, do you want to do 
a Catwoman one-shot. Uh, so I did issue nine. Uh, and then he said, okay, do you want to come do a two-parter? And I did issue 14 and 15. And then, you know, I had started working on Justice League Dark. I did the annual. Uh, and then somewhere around that time where I was already through a few issues of Justice League Dark, Jessica Chen, who is now current editor on Catwoman, came back to me and said, look, we've gone through all the previous issues and um, we really like what you did with the character in those three and people seem to really enjoy it. Do you want to come write um, Catwoman? Um, because I think Joel's moving on after, after 24 or so. Um, and, you know, I took some time to think about it and I had, I felt like I had a pretty good sort of gritty street level crime run in me. Uh, and, I said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. Um, I'm, at some, I suppose at some point it'll, it'll, it'll get to that point where I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm all, I'm all out of crime heists, uh, and and so we'll, we'll have that discussion. But yeah, that's how I was kind of brought, brought on board. So from that, because this is obviously part of the Batman family, and there are directions that come, directions of the title not orders, although possibly some of those too, um, that come from working in a book that's part of one of these sort of families. Sure. How much did you have coming in and how much was sort of, okay, this is where the books are going. So what stories do you have to fit with that? I mean, there is some of it that, that comes in as more than you have to do this. It usually comes in as, okay, these are the things you can't do because we're planning on X, Y, Z. Um, and they're less, I look at them less as constraints or orders. And I look at them more as like, okay, these are the challenges of writing this story. These are the constraints within which I have to write it. Um, and uh, I think, I think it, it helps and makes things more interesting that way. Uh, almost, almost better than having like a do whatever you want. Because, uh, because <laughs> there is some kind of structure to work with. Um, and then the, the other stuff, which is, you know, tying into the bigger narrative, I quite enjoy that. So, so James and I, uh, you know, we have, we have calls every couple of weeks where we talk about like, okay, what are your plans on Batman? Okay, what are my plans on Cap? Oh, there's this awesome place where, where we could kind of cross over and my events could bleed into yours and your events could bleed into mine. Uh, and so I'd much prefer that than, you know, being approached by editorial teams from both comics going like, hmm, guys, we should try and get something going here. Um, I, find it, I find it much easier and much more entertaining to vibe with another writer or another artist. Um, and so that's how we've been doing it so far. What for you makes Catwoman a good mentor? She's had plenty of sidekicks over the years, Holly Robinson, various other characters mm. that have been brought in, but her running this whole crew of strays is a new level of that for her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't look at it as much as what makes her a good mentor. I think um, in my experience, people tend to gravitate towards characters with, with charisma um, and characters with daring and often, uh, and I, and I build this off of my experience of, Mumbai and Mumbai history, um, often when you're a part of society that 
doesn't have that doesn't feature in decision making from from higher ups or because uh, you know you're a strata of society that gets looked at as expendable um, you you tend to lose your voice and then you tend to find it in people who are capable of either taking that power for themselves or, or combating it with their own power or subverting it somehow with their actions. And so people tend to gravitate towards characters like Selena, who is obviously someone who functions outside of the system, if you will. Um, and so I think there was a natural sense of like, okay, she's going back to Alleytown. What do we do there? Well, the people of Alleytown have kind of been left adrift in more ways than one uh, within within Gotham City. And so if she went back, there would be a natural tendency for them to, to look up to her in some way. So, well, before we move on to one of your other titles, I have one question that is the like, super bat nerd question that <laughs> is in all likelihood me over-connecting two things that are completely unrelated. But I have the opportunity to ask it, so I'm going to. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the mysterious assassin stalking Selena is Father Valley. Right. Uh, the last name there, coupled with his religious religious leanings, immediately stirred a connection to another one of Gotham's more famous residents. Uh, so is this guy somehow connected to Jean-Paul Valley, Azrael, and the Order of St. Dumas, the religious order of wackos that he works with or is it just one of those weird little coincidences that happens or am i asking something that you have to go no comment on uh rather than saying no comment i would say read on and you shall find out absolutely fair answer <laughs> an answer that I, one of the possibilities i was expecting excellent uh so uh next up uh, is we want to talk Swamp Thing, which was for me and for our writers and coverage, one of the highlights of uh, the Future State Initiative. Mm -hmm. um, how much of what you did there is going to tie into your new 10-issue run on the character? Well, I mean, Future State is not, re not really supposed to be something that is a tie-in as much as it is an extrapolation. Um, and so... I think it's fair to say you will see elements of the 10 issue run that you would look at and go, oh, I see that's probably why it turned out the way it did in Future State. Um, or you look at events here and go like, I can see how that might lead into what happened in Future State. Um, and so more than having it be anything as much as a tie-in, uh, I suppose Future State was a glimpse of what may exist in the future of this 10 issue run. And so um, you're gonna start seeing the pieces kind of fall into place that might have possibly led to that kind of future. What was your first exposure to Swamp Thing? You, you've got a feeling that you've got an affinity. I mean, your first JL Dark annual was the Parliament of Petals and you've written a lot of Swamp Thing in JL Dark. Right. Um, so in terms of writing, that was certainly my first exposure to Swamp Thing. Um, you know, the, the Justice League Dark Annual was the first time 
I'd really written the character and um, James had come to me and gone, um, hey, we've got this annual coming up and I want to do a Swamp Thing story. And I think the way you wrote these Savage Shores uh, is, is certainly in the same space as I would like to see someone take on Swamp Thing. Um, and so that's how that came about. As far as reading exposure to Swamp Thing, really, my um, exposure to Swamp Thing came through because of Sandman in a lot of ways. Um, I had read Sandman and then I'd gone like, okay, Neil Gaiman is amazing. I have to read everything he's done. And so I read uh, everything uh, Neil had written and obviously he'd written um, Black Orchid. And I think there's a Swamp Thing appearance in there. Uh, and also later on, you know, I read somewhere that Alan Moore was this writer who had recommended Neil Gaiman to, to Karen Berger. Um, I don't know how much of that is true, but, um, but then I went, okay, I got to find out who Alan Moore is because the things I like generally tend to be connected. Um, and so I went, okay, let me read everything Alan Moore done. And so I read Swamp Thing Run and I read, you know, pretty much everything he had done in comics. Uh, although he's one of those writers that, you know, every 10 years you discover, oh, he did this weird collection of short uh, stories for 2000 AD that I've never read before. I should go check them out. Um, so yeah, I pretty much followed that, that vertigo sort of tree, family tree from down there because uh, I read Al Moore, then I read Grant Morrison, Ellis, Ennis. Um, I read, read all of Hellblazer. And so obviously a lot of sort of parallel connections between Hellblazer and Swamp Thing as well. So uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that was kind of the place where I re-familiarized myself with comics really. So I suppose even if I can't pinpoint, like this was the first time I read Swamp Thing, um, it, it, it was all part of what I was reading when I was having my second childhood with comics, if you will. You'll be introducing a new guardian of the green in your series, Levi mm -hmm. Kamai. Mm -hmm. uh, why does it feel like it was time for a new Swamp Thing? Well, you see, this is, this is kind of the discussion people generally have when you say like, okay, I'm going to write a Swamp Thing book. And the first thought everyone has is, oh my God, have you read Alan Moore Swamp Thing, right? Um, so I had read the Alan Moore Swamp Thing and I read everything uh, sort of Lynn Wayne had done before then. And, and I read Vage's run, Nancy Collins, Snyder. So and you realize that the reason Moore's run and, and the reason some of the issues from some of the other runs kind of really stand out is because they're doing something new. But each time you do something new with, with Swamp Thing, I think the, the bracket of what else you can do that is new keeps shrinking, especially with someone like an Alan Moore writing series. His, his brain is so expansive in terms of concepts. He's not focusing on interpersonal drama to drive his story forward. He's focusing on ideas and concepts and taking this character and expand. And I feel like that kind of slowed down uh, after he was done and, and a lot of other runs came in, I felt like they became more focused on the interpersonal drama, which is great. You can tell really wonderful stories that way. 
But then if, when you've had, you know, 20, 30 years of someone writing interpersonal drama of one character, you kind of, you've kind of beaten that dead horse, if you will. Um, and so I felt like the way to rejuvenate this character was to go back to the idea that, look, Swamp Thing is much bigger than one person. It is an idea that is much bigger than something connected to one person. Um, and I totally understand from a writing perspective why you need that human interpersonal connection and drama. Otherwise, it becomes an unrelatable character. So he said, okay, well, let's keep Swamp Thing. Let's go back to that era of amazing, expansive stories. But let's now tether him to someone new. So we have new relationships and new concerns and new ideas. The other possibly equally important consideration was why are we telling Swamp Thing stories through the eyes of someone who, you know, was around from the 60s or the 70s or 80s, you know? We need someone who understands the 21st century as it is uh, and, and looks at the world and people and climate and humanity through the eyes of a 21st century person. And the way to do that was to go, okay, let's tether him to a 21st century guardian of the green. I like the idea of Levi as a 21st century boy. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, along the same lines the book now has a the in the title um, it's a very small thing but it feels significant so I was just kind of curious what you know the the discussion or, or the thinking was behind adding the definite article I mean we had this discussion with editorial where they said do you want to do a subtitle do you want to do a and Mike and I talked about it and we said no this is the swamp thing this is not a Swamp Thing on the side. This is not a Swamp Thing we're going to visit for a little bit. As far as Mike and I are concerned, like, this is the Swamp Thing. Uh, and the story that I'm writing also sort of reconciles that. It, it affirms that. Um, it doesn't deny the existence of uh, Alec Holland, and it doesn't sort of ignore it. It, it, it imbibes it into the story. Uh, and so... I think it was important for us to to sort of present to the readers the idea that this is the swamp thing. There isn't another swamp thing um, that that you're that we're going to ignore or that we're going to put inside a box. Uh, and so, I think I think hopefully it, it does that. Interesting. Uh, so we got a couple Twitter questions. So I'm going to kind of pepper those in throughout. But uh, the first one uh, from uh, Anyi. Uh, asks, uh, and I'm going to try and play with this a little bit, but uh, is there a classic DC character in, in Catwoman or Swamp Thing that you feel like you've gotten the freedom to reinvent, to insert a new narrative, a new path for different stories? Now, clearly, based on the discussion we just had, you know, that's, that's what you're doing with Swamp Thing himself, mm -hmm. but, you know, are there any other characters that fit that bill, you know, in, in the supporting cast, let's say? I mean, I don't really... I don't really think about it in those terms, um, yeah. to be honest. Um, whenever I get a story, you know, I'm trying to always tell a new story, if you will. Um, and, you know, I started off Catwoman wanting to sort of scratch my Ed Brubaker, Darwin Cook itch. Mm. Um, but I'm also, you know, that thing, that kind of stuff wears off for me um, two or three issues later. And I go like, okay, what can I do? Mm -hmm. um and so you know there there are things that i've done with that run that are now 
probably taking it in a, in a direction that, that I wanted to take it into. Uh, with Swamp Thing, that opportunity was presented to me right at the beginning where they said, okay, if you wanted to do a Swamp Thing now, what would you do and how would it be different from, because there have been so many Swamp Thing series over the years and, and some of them have been very successful. Some of them, others have not been so successful. And so um, I think the question presented to me was like, what are you going to do that is going to rejuvenate this character? And because that question came to me right at the beginning, I went like, okay, well, then we're just going to start from scratch and we're going to reinvent this character without denying everything that happened before. And so that was the challenge that was presented to me there. Um, and, you know, we haven't talked as much about, about JLD yet, but I think, I think there's another thing that's going to be that's going to be a reinvention in itself because I found all these like rules with team books. Like, oh, we have to have the same team for 25 issues. Why? Why can't we have like three quarters of the team say the same and then other characters rotate in and out? Why can't we go away for two issues and tell a story of a side character where the team's not involved? Uh, and all these like arbitrary rules of how team books work uh, and so with JLD, it's now, you know, 10 page stories in the back of a JL book. When, when the editors came to me and said, hey, do you still want to continue doing this? I said, yes, but I get more leeway in terms of what I'm going to do with it. And they went, yeah, that's fine. That is a perfect segue into Just Sleep Dark. <laughs> um, you started writing uh, Dark as a co-write with uh, James Townie the fourth uh, for taking it over towards the end of the run as a standalone book on your own. Was that always the plan when you started co-writing? Um, understandably, I don't think anyone comes to you and says, Hey, do you want to take this book and write it forever? Um, no, I think it started off as a, Hey, do you want to co-write this next arc with me? Um, and we did that. And while we were doing that, you know, two issues in, uh, I think editorial was also pretty happy in terms of, okay, um, this guy seems to know what he's doing. So, Hey, do you want to continue writing to the end of this arc that James has set up? Uh, and then by the time we got there, we had the other discussion of, okay, we're going to do feature state and then we're going to go start in March. Do you have any ideas what you want to do with that? Um, I presented a fairly bizarre idea of what I wanted to do with JLD, um, and and you know editorial seemed to like it, so so here we are. Very cool. Infinite Frontier has opened this the full panorama of DC history to all the creators and allowed access to characters that we haven't seen in a while since you just said that, you know, you now have side, you know, these side characters and all sorts of experiment and form, are there any of those mystical characters that are speaking to you that you haven't gotten to use yet? I mean, you use Obsidian in Swamp Thing, uh, Future State Swamp Thing, and he kind hasn't of, been around in quite a while. Just a cameo appearance, but yes. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's been a long time since we've seen Obsidian. There's a story behind how that came about. Actually, to be honest, like Obsidian was not a character on my radar at all. And um, 
I don't know if I've told the story to anyone before, but there was a different character in there uh, with a different set of powers uh, that was going to, uh, you know, affect the world. And for whatever reason, editorial came back and they said, look, we know you've been already written issue one of this, but um, we're having a kind of story clash with something else that's happening somewhere else in the DCU. Uh, and it's not something we can change at that end so can you do something to change pretty much your entire concept having written the first issue um and so i was like look i don't know if that works i might have to go back and write issue one again um and we were genuinely at that point at at which point mike comes in and mike's like this encyclopedia of obscure dc characters and mike's just like why don't we just use obsidian because he does the same mechanical stuff that Ram wants to do. Um, and, you know, he hasn't been around for a while, so I think people will get excited. And I had no idea this character existed, to be honest. And so I went back and I looked up and I said, that works. We can totally, you know, swing the same plot with, with Obsidian in there. And um, that's how that came about. So all credit to Mike for using, for using Obsidian. Um, but I, but I take the spirit of your question uh, in, in, in that are there, are there any obscure characters that have spoken to me uh, in terms of what I want to do with them? And I always, I always answer this question, like I don't, I don't really go spend my time looking up characters that are, by the way, oh, what I want to, would I want to work with this character? It's more if I come across a character and I go like, oh, I could do something interesting with that. Uh, and so there have certainly been, considering you know, my, my exposure to DC began with Vertigo, there have certainly been characters uh, in that space that I've gone like, hmm, I can do something interesting with that. Um, and so we'll, we'll see some of them certainly make appearances in, in the JLB run. Um, and there are also characters, and these are pet peeves of mine where people take characters with sort of Indian origin or, or somewhere around India and they go like, mysterious mystical man has come in and has done some spell Indian stuff. And now we will tell the story that we were telling uh, in the first place. And so like that to me is charming in terms of like, okay, I get it. it it's, it's a product of its time, but now there's no reason for it to continue that way. And so I can go like, okay, when you say mysterious man from India comes and does something cool and magical, what does that actually mean? What does that actually look like? And so there are characters that have existed since the 60s who were from India in the DCU. Um, and, and so we'll start seeing like some of them being taken up and, and reinvented and, and played around with, so. Interesting. Yeah. Um. So speaking of Infinite Frontier, you know, you're, you're kind of in on the ground floor for this new uh, era, I guess, uh, at DC. Um, how, I guess, connected are you with what's going on in all the other books? You know, is there sort of a group... Mm -hmm. Groupthink obviously is not the right word. Uh, you know, is there a collective is it, planning? Yes, yes. Or, or is everybody, you know, pretty much kind of self-contained in their own uh, wheelhouses? Well, I think 
I think it depends on the book. Uh, I think the the Catwoman and Gotham stuff is certainly very well connected because the editorial facilitates a kind of coming together of all the writers and, mm -hmm. and what have you got planned? What have you got planned? What have you got planned? Goes on there. Um, uh, with with Swamp Thing, also to an extent, there's there's a connectivity because one of the early sort of things I had when when I was planning Swamp Thing was people were like, okay, look, we know you love Vertigo Swamp Thing, but this is not a separate imprint. This is the DCU, and so you have to find ways of connecting Swamp Thing. And the moment people were like, people said that. You know, I don't, like I said before, I don't look at these as constraints. I just went like, yes, of course we will. I am very happy to take all the toys you're giving me and use them in weird ways. Um, and so I think there's there's going to be that connectivity there. Um, and also, you know, from, from the other side, I had to say um, people like Josh Williamson, Brian Bendis, um, James Tynan, these guys have all gone out of their way to reach out and go like hey i'm doing this thing and i know you're writing that book and and is there a way we can we can make these things kind of connect or resonate or reflect with each other um and so i have to i have to say i've felt like very welcomed into the general sort of collective planning of things um even though my natural tendency doesn't quite go there like when i get given the story i become kind of excited to just telling that story uh, and I suppose part of sort of telling stories in these larger universes is I have to get better at going like okay what can I do in an interesting way that resonates with other people's books as well which is not is not too far from natural tendencies of writers if you look at people like Asimov or Stephen King they're their great life's work has been to eventually make all of their books connect in some meaningful and interesting way. <laughs> Certainly. Um, so yeah, let's, let's, let's move on from, from DC into your uh, indie work. Uh, you've got uh, radio apocalypse coming out from fault in April with your uh, frequent collaborators, uh, Anand RK and uh, Aditya Bidikar. Uh for the readers. I'm going to go ahead and read the uh, solicit text Give Matt's voice a rest for a little bit. Um, long after the rock out of space struck the world and turned it all to dust, in Bakerstown stands the last radio station on the planet. Radio Apocalypse, broadcasting into the unknown, a beacon in the dark for those who wander the lost places. Now, change is coming to Bakerstown. Uh, among the refugees flocking into an already precarious settlement, an orphan boy, Ryan, uh, caught in the indiscretion, will twine his fate with the radio station, and in doing so, begin his mixtape of love and heartbreak and interminable hope this soundtrack to the end of the world. Uh, so it, it sounds like we've got another big uh, music heavy project uh, following Blue and Green. Uh, it's also your triumphant return to Vault following the Savage Shores. Um, how long have you been uh, working on this new series? Well, the, it's a very complicated answer. So this was the first series Anand and I actually discussed working on when we first started collaborating. Anand did the cover for Black Mamba mm -hmm. um, back when you know he wasn't making comics at all he was a portrait artist interested in doing narrative storytelling I suppose um, and so the first project we started talking about was really Radio Apocalypse um, we created a pitch um, I showed it around other books kind of took off 
and the and the general consensus was that you can't really do music and comics. Other people have tried, and it's not a it's not a successful mix, which was very odd because this was being said right around the time Kieran Gillen was you know doing mm-hmm. Wikdiv and phonogram, phonogram and um, and so that's like. I suppose it was a matter of like, okay, Kieran Gillen can do it, but you can't, um, which is understandable. But then we did Graffiti's Wall, which had, you know, hip hop and music influences. And then, then Blue and Green, which clearly was based off of, um, you know, jazz as a, as a lens into, into storytelling. And to be honest, like I've always had musical influences in all my comics, like Zatanna, says a queen line when she's when she's you know um fighting off some monster there's prince lyrics thrown in there at some point there was a tool lyric thrown into swamp thing uh and so yeah i've, I've kind of worn my musical influences uh, you know on my sleeve when i was writing these things and so you know turn come around to to 2020 and suddenly it was possible to do Radio Apocalypse. Uh, and so Anand and I were just finishing up Blue and Green uh, and I went back to him and I said, look, I know it's been a while since we talked about this. And he went like, yes, any day, yes to Radio Apocalypse. So I was like, okay, cool. We'll pitch it. We pitched it to Vault. Vault said yes. And so the series that we first talked about and sort of kept in the back burner for years now finally happened. That's awesome. Uh, and, and and speaking of, you know, in furtherance of the idea that, you know, you can't do music in comics is, is, is you know, bullshit. Uh, I, I just read Blue and Green and prepping for this podcast. And, you know, that is definitely a book that is going to stick with me. Um, it's fantastic. Uh, you know, sticking with the sort of jazz theme of that book, are you at the point where, where Anand and, uh, and Aditya are like your rhythm section, you know, so they're, they're, you know, laying down a beat and you just kind of improvise over it, which... That's what I wrote. And then I realized after I wrote it, I think I just described Marvel method, but like in a music metaphor. <laughs> no, I, I don't know that it quite worked that way with, yeah. with Anand and Aditya because I think, I think relegating them to the idea of a rhythm section is also, also strange for me. I think, yeah. it's more, I think it's more like three people showing up mm-hmm. to the stage. You don't know what's going to happen. And then one guy starts like tapping on the mic the other guy's like, okay, I'm going to try out these drums a little bit. And then third guy comes in and he pulls out a saxophone from his case. And you realize that, okay, at some point, all of this is going to sound like music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so it's more a case of that where I think it's artists and collaborators and musicians kind of coming together and going like, okay, what if, what if I hold this rhythm? What would you do with that? And then someone else goes like, okay, well, here's a cool riff that I've been working on. And then third person goes like, I can come over the top of that with, with this. Uh, and I think, to be honest, all of my creator-owned comics work that way to an extent uh, where, where I've always felt like the comic book is better if someone else can come in and go like, but what if we changed it like this? Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly with, with Anand and Aditya, that has always been the case because both of those guys know they can, you know, ring me at, 2 a.m. in the morning and go like, I have this crazy idea that we need to do uh, and it will be fine. Uh, and so, yeah, does that, does that answer your question? Does yeah. that explain 
Uh, I think comics and music are very similar, uh, having been in bands before and, and being a avid guitar player and a blues musician myself. Um, I think there's, there are a lot of commonalities to making music as a band versus making comics as a collective of creators. Certainly. And I have to imagine, you know, with the number of times that you've worked with, with, with Anand and the relationship you just described, it's kind of, it sharpens what you look for when you're working with, you know, other creators on other projects, you know, for the first time. Yes. Uh, I mean, everyone's different, but there are certainly common traits to, to people like the thing that I most look for when I'm, when I'm working with people. And, and I always get this in terms of like, how do you find interesting artists to work with? Um, I don't look for people with like, okay, this person has lots of experience making comics. And I look for people who sound like they're annoyed that they're not better than how good they already are. Like, like someone who's always annoyed because they can't do that one other thing they've been trying to do. I think that inherent trait of being like, I need to be better. I need to do better. I need to expand my horizons in terms of what I can do. Like Aditya is the embodiment of that. This is a guy who taught himself to letter sitting in India, having no exposure to the comics industry in general. Um, he had already lettered, you know, Tony Lee and a couple of interesting writers at the time, having never been to a comic book conventions, having never pitched himself as a letterer to anyone. Um, and I think that trait is incredibly valuable uh, in, in creators because you'll always end up with everyone pushing in hopefully in the same direction to do something new. When you're, when you're working on a new book, uh, you know, do you tend, uh, do you tend to create playlists for, you know, as you're, as you're working on books, uh, you know, either for public, you know, consumption, like, oh, hey, here's something I, you know, came up with for, you know, while I was working on Blue and Green or just, just for yourself, just for ROM? Uh, so part two of that question, just for me, <laughs> yes, all the time. Um, for public consumption, I suppose where, when the book warrants it, <laughs> like Blue and Green warranted there being a playlist, so I so I put out the playlist. Um, but um, not a lot of people know this. That first issue of Catwoman, issue twenty five, that I did, it started off this run. Um, I had no idea what I was going to do until I heard a song by Rosalia and and saw the video to it. Uh, I can't remember the name. Plus, also it's in Spanish, so I'll butcher it. But. Um, it had a scene in there where she sat at a dinner table um, and there's food in front of her and there's a wolf on the table growling at her as she watches it. And that was the idea that led to the dancing with the tiger in the, in the Selena issue. And so music has always played that kind of uh, interesting role in terms of spurring on um, ideas for me. And so I've always, listen to music when I'm writing stuff. Um, with something like Radio Apocalypse, because we're specifically speaking about that, um, the playlist is in the book, which is kind of what the idea behind making this comic was, was I wanted to do something where, okay, what if the storytelling and the art expanded outside of what you're reading? 
and and the idea kind of came to me because I tend to write with headphones on, and I imagine a lot of people tend to read with headphones on as well. Uh, and so I just went, well, what if we could tell people what to read based on what they were reading? I'm sorry, we we could tell people what to listen to based on what they were reading in the book. Uh, and so the idea is that as you read these stories in Radio Apocalypse, there are clues and hints within the book to kind of tell you what you, you should be listening to mm-hmm. while you're reading that book. Interesting. I like that. Um, yeah. Uh, so in addition to Radio Apocalypse, uh, you've also got The Many Deaths of Layla Starr coming out in April from Boom uh, with uh, Felipe Andrade. Uh, again, I'll just read the spiel for the listeners. Uh, with humanity on the verge of discovering immortality, the avatar of death is fired and relegated to the world below to live out her now finite days in the body of 20-something Layla Starr in, in Mumbai. Uh, struggling with her newfound mortality, Layla has found a way to be placed in the time and place where the creator of immortality will be born. But will Layla take her chance to permanently reverse the course of future history, or does a more shocking fate await her? Uh, so thinking about uh, Layla and, and Levi, the Swamp Thing, uh, you know, does it does it mean more when, when you get to write and create characters of, of Indian descent and, and raise their visibility in comics? To an extent, mm-hmm. um, but more than anything, you ever heard that line from people where people say oh, all, the, all the original stories have been told? Okay. Um, and, and people say that, well, there's only six real original stories and all the other stories are versions of them. And I always kind of scoff at that. I always laugh at that because I think stories are cultural or uh, artifacts, right? They, they come from the things that we have experienced, but not just us, that we have experienced as members of society, that the collective has experienced long before we were even in existence. And so original stories are there if you look for original stories and places outside of the places that you're intimately familiar with. Um, and I think that my first experience of that was reading Murakami and going like, this is so unusual and bizarre and weird. And then I've gone on to read other Japanese authors. And although Murakami's work is original, my overwhelming sense is like, I get it. I get why it's all like this. Um, and so I think part of that is I want to bring new stories to comic book readers and Indian stories will feel new and interesting because they have a sense of originality and unfamiliarity to people who have not experienced that culture. Mm-hmm. That said, um, one of the kind of most defining moments for me when I was writing is, you know, I was writing prose short stories when I was uh, just starting out writing, maybe around 2013, 2014. And one of my cousins read these stories and said, you know, these are really good, but how come you'd never have any Indian characters in your stories? And it really kind of threw me into turmoil. And I went like, why do I not have Indian characters? Why does it feel weird to call the protagonist of some great sci-fi space opera as Rahul instead of, you know, Luke or John, you know? Um, And the reason for that is because I had never read a cool sci-fi space opera with Ravi or Ram as lead characters. Uh, And I think 
that is a that is a odd thing for a person to feel that they go like oh I, in my brain, I, am, I, I can't imagine myself as the protagonist of, of this kind of story. Uh, and so I wanted to fix that. And so part of the motivation behind creating or bringing these characters to the fore is hopefully, you know, people who are reading these stories who will start writing stories 10 years down the line will go like, I can totally write this because this is me. I know where this person comes from. Um, and so, yes to both things, but with their, with their caveats, eventually it's the quality of the story that matters. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, 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 on some level, it doesn't matter where your protagonists come from, but on the other level, of course, it's important. Of course, it's central to what, what the story will be. Um, so you're, you're in the, uh, uh, you know, you've got you've got the White Noise Collective with with Dan Waters and Alex Pacnadel and, and Ryan also O'Sullivan, and you know, all you guys have been doing uh, amazing work the last couple of years. Um, how how are you? Are you guys still, you know, I guess feeding off each other? I guess challenging each other at the, as as you know your careers go on and and develop, and and you know also pandemic. So it's not like you can go out for pints or anything like that. You know, how are you guys kind of? I, I guess continuing to push each other uh, these days. Um, mostly Facebook Messenger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, actually, we started off with a Facebook group when we when we first met, and, and it's always been this place of like I don't know. I define it as like a third toilet humor, a third <laughs> generally complaining about things in comics. Um, and a third of like interesting writing discourse and, and influences and pushing each other to do, do well. It's a good mix. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and more than anything else, like it's become this place of like almost, almost rediscovering. And this is in context too, when you said your careers have, have gone on, um, it's become this place of rediscovering like, why am I in this? Why am I doing this? Why am I interested in writing comics? Um, it's not because I want to tell, you know, hundred issues of some character so people can, you know, enjoy it and, and shower me with their adulation. That's the wrong motivation. The, the, the right motivation should be, I want to tell something new. I want to tell something interesting. I want to push the medium. I want to push the narrative. Um, and I think we hold each other true to that. Um, through all the terrible toilet humor and complaining. Um, and I think that is invaluable as a, as a writer to be constantly reminded of why you're doing this in the first place. Um, that aside, I think the relationship is also going to new and interesting places. Um, you know, Alex, Alex Pacnazol has done work now at Marvel as well. And with me and Dan have having sort of gone through the process of, of you know, okay, how do you, how do you sort of rejig the pieces in your head to, to write in a superhero universe? I think that experience now for Alex is like, okay, guys, what did you do when you came up with this, with this problem? Uh, and so that kind of evolution is there. And then Dan Waters and I are going to be collaborating on a, on a project, um, which we'll probably see light of day next year. Um, 
and it will be a collaboration that is unlike any other co-writing project you've seen um, is a collaboration that is intended to push the form and format of the medium rather than two people getting together and writing a script. Man. All right. Well, I'm definitely excited about that. Um, and, and also I should point out, uh, Ram, you are the third member of the collective to come on this show. So All right. um, yeah, Ryan, Ryan O'Sullivan, you're, you're next. You're on notice. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. I, I do have to ask this though. Wh which one of you is the big toilet humor guy? Probably Alex. Yes. <laughs> I, that was my guess. <laughs> uh, man, that man has a filthy mouth. <laughs> um, you recently tweeted about giving a prose author you knew who wasn't a comics guy, a Dave McKean piece to mm. show them the power of comics mm. and said that you were thinking about doing the opposite for some prose verse comic writers. Yeah. Uh, what, what is a good piece of prose for the prose verse who read comics? I, I want to know because I would love, there are people I know who I would love to give some prose to like, that. I mean, that story in particular, um, the, I think it's called The Coast Road, is, is a story that was very influential in terms of The Savage Shores, certainly. Um, you know, outside of the obvious prose influences of Dracula and whatnot. But that story in particular was very influential because it is the story of a wife who, is, who travels the world or travels this coast road looking for her husband who went missing XYZ number of years ago. Um, and the entire thing is presented as her recording her journey in her journals. Uh, and so they're letters and they're letters of prose juxtaposed with beautiful images at times, or they seamlessly segue into comics with just a word or two on the page. And at no point do you find yourself going, I'm reading prose now, I'm reading comics now, I'm reading prose now. It's just writing and it's just art. And um, you know, the same could be said of things like Watchmen, where certainly there's a bit more rigid um, sections of prose versus sections of comics. But if you're reading the whole thing, at no point do you find yourself going like, oh, my God, this is prose. What am I doing? I don't know. Um, it's never a question because it's part of your reading experience. And if it's part of your reading experience, why should it be a question when it's part of the writing experience? Um, I think all these pieces of advice, like keep it to a such and such word count or only so many words in a balloon, or you can't have more than this much dialogue on a page, or you can't have caption boxes that are so big. They're, they're great, but they're training wheels. And at some point you have to, you know, no one teaches you to pop a wheelie when you're learning to ride a bike, but come on, you have to try to pop a wheelie at some point if you want to be a good biker, right? So, so it's, it's the same thing with writing. I think we should stop, especially people who've been around for a while, should stop saying things like mm, training wheels. Um, and I think part of it is also that these, these greats like Dave McKean, Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore, they've done their bit. 
they've made these comics for people to appreciate and love and they've moved on. Uh, and I think what happens is we look at them and we go like, these are the classics. These are great. These are not meant for me to emulate. I will emulate the stuff that are not these amazing things. No, don't edify stuff. Um, you know, they were just as clueless making these books until these things were on the page uh, as, as you or I. And so if anything, the message from people like Neil Gaiman, Alan Moore, is that tell your stories, do your own thing, make your own stuff, fail. The, the, one of the great big risks of getting rid of your training wheels is that you're going to fall down and fail. And that's okay. No one should ever be telling you that it's okay to be mediocre and not fail. Um, no, it's never okay to do that. Fail. It's art. It's not a, a conveyor belt where you produce comics. Um, and so, yeah, I hope, hope that answers the question. Um, but, but other pieces of prose, I think you'll find uh, a lot of them in, in McKean's pictures that tick or, or I think that's what it's called. Um, cages is another interesting thing. Uh, I'd been to Dave McKean's perform performance at the British library where he did comics on a screen behind him while he narrated the story and played the piano on a stage. Uh, and there were people acting out sequences as well. That's just amazing to me. Um, and then also, I saw a performance, a live, uh, a stage performance of uh, Pluto, the uh, Urasawa uh, manga, mm -hmm. which was performed on a stage that was three stories, essentially on, on three tiers on top of each other with panel borders in between. So characters were moving in and out of panels as they were telling the story. Comics can be more than prose, it can be theater, it can be music. And, and the, the more people stop sort of bracketing what comics should be, the better we will be for it. Yeah, so, whew, wow, if, if there's one takeaway from that, it, it, more people should be popping wheelies. Uh, yes. <laughs> both li literally and figuratively. Uh, wow. Liter literary wheelies are what <laughs> I live for, yeah. Oh, that sounds I good. I think we have title. an episode title. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, jinx. Um, <laughs> all right. A uh, couple, couple more Twitter questions before we wind down. Um, so Colin Maxwell asks, and I think it's a legitimate question, what hair care regime do you follow, sir? Uh, my hair care regime can be condensed to, well, it's not really a regime, but it can be condensed <laughs> to two words, um, which is great genetics. I do nothing my dad is 75 and has a full head of flowing long hair. Uh, and so, uh, sorry guys, I was genuinely born with it. <laughs> Listen, you, you take care of that. <laughs> oh man, uh, speaking as a man who uh, went bald at 39, but anyway. Uh... <laughs> I'm getting there. <laughs> Well, Matt, before we wallow, you take us into Pet Corner. <laughs> yes, it is time for everybody's favorite segment, Pet Corner. I was unable to find anything specifically online indicating whether you have a pet currently, but I'm going to specifically ask you if you currently or at any point have had a cat. 
because the short uh, from Catwoman 25 from the Alleytown cat's perspective reads to me a devoted cat person, uh, like someone who gets the <laughs> way the mind of a cat works or as much as any human can. Well, uh, I do have a pet. I have a Jack Russell Terrier who is probably running around somewhere downstairs. Uh, it's not allowed in my office. Um, <laughs> and I have had a cat. I had a Maine Coon cross uh, back when I was in Philly as uh, living there as a student, which in hindsight is probably not a great set of circumstances to have a cat in. But um, first reaction when I, when I brought him home was uh, there was a doorman at the building who saw him and went, oh my God, it's a lion. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, I've had a cat. Uh, he was the world's laziest cat, in my opinion. Uh, he would sit in front of the bathroom door because uh, the guys downstairs had their ceiling heater right there. So the door, so the floor would get kind of warm in winter. And so he would just sit there uh, and not move. And if you wanted to go to the bathroom, you could open the door and he would just kind of slide with it. Uh, he would make no effort to, to move. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's certainly things that I've picked up from there. Um, but I think that story in particular has more to do with Dan Waters' cat, um, Pancakes, who I was cat-sitting probably at the time where I was writing that. Uh, and, and she was upstairs um, in, in, our, in our guest room, I suppose. Uh, and she, you know, I hadn't had a cat in a while, so I'd go in and I'd be like, hey, Pancakes, I'll pet you. And she'd be like, okay, I really like this the first two times. And the third time you touch me, I'm like, I hate this. Uh, and so, yeah. So, so I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm definitely going to put that vibe into the Catwoman story. Um, yeah. So hopefully that answers your question. Indeed. It does. Uh, also, apparently Dan Waters had a cat and we didn't know about it. But anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Next time. Next up. Yeah, there you go. Um, okay. Uh, final, final Twitter question. Uh, Edward Kane asks, uh, what is your favorite book currently on the stands? And I'll just sub-qualify this with that you are not writing. <laughs> right. Um, I don't know if it's on the stands anymore, uh, but it was recently on the stands. Um, I read Gideon Falls that I liked quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, I think Ice Cream Man has been a treat uh and and will continue to be so with haha i imagine i haven't caught up on those yet um i've also enjoyed department of truth uh from from tynan and yeah i mean I, I i suppose this only goes to show i'm not very current with with releases but i try to i try to sort of stay keep in touch i i read comics the same way i i watch my tv or i watch my movies I wait until everything is out. I wait until all the discourse is done. And then I look at people I trust and go like, did you enjoy this? Okay, I will watch this. Um, <laughs> yeah, I get, I get, I have violent reactions to watching or experiencing things that have been hyped up. And then when you go and actually see them, you're like, oh, I hate this. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, uh, in order to avoid that, I've let a lot of comics come out and then I've gone like, okay, people I trust seem to enjoy this. I'm going to pick this up. It's a good system. 
Uh, well, uh, Ram, it's, it's been fun. It's, it's been an hour. Uh, final question. How can people uh, keep up with your work and follow you online? Uh, short answer. I'm on ram-v.com, which needs updating. Uh, but if you want more updated news, I'm on Twitter at the right Ram, uh, which is probably the only social media that I stay current on. So. All right, Ram, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is now part of ComicsXF, formerly Xavier Files, meaning you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom and Chris's on Infinite Earths, and a ton of great comics criticism at ComicsXF.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice, and a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail for my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from Toxman at ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel Spider-Woman series, and Lan M from Lan's Vids. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember to spay and neuter your good night and good luck. W-M-Q-A.